Internet, hello, welcome uh, to the uh, World Vox headquarters, suburban Columbus, Ohio, um, with a, uh, a beautiful, handsome Filipino face beaming in <laughs> from San Juan Capistrano, uh, yes. California. And my mustache um, is representing San Juan. <laughs> and uh, oh my goodness this mustache you you just need to see it it's um uh something i mean the caterpillar analogy fits <laughs> although it's overused you know sure. but man as i'm looking at it i'm like bro it's you it's a fuzzy caterpillar yeah um what, what's mercedes how's mercedes liking it you know, it's it's nice. She doesn't she doesn't give me too much flack for it. What it comes down to is, I'll just have it for a while, and eventually she'll just be like, "Yeah, I'm over it." <laughs> is there more kissing or less kissing with the mustache? Um, there I is. I think there, that's the question you know, I'm really asking. I think there's a lot more. I mean, I understand okay. why. You know, when you, when you put this thing on. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, I definitely need a caterpillar then. <laughs> I um, wish you would. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are so glad to be with you. Andy has spent so much time figuring out how to get all this set up. Uh, I know we've been doing Sex, Love, and God, and thank you so much for the feedback, but we've been eager to kind of start doing, you know, back to original stuff. Um, and if not original stuff, then uh, interviewing people who have original stuff. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do today. Um, there is a... Uh, 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 distant friend of mine uh, named Sky Jatani, who he and I went to college together and remember him just as incredibly intelligent. And he has, um, he's found himself kind of in a, in the middle of the whole podcast, ebook, like video space, doing loads of cultural commentary. Um, I've read a couple of his, of his books, but we've also heard him on a couple other podcasts and we're like, dude, we got to have him. Yeah. So he's here to talk about his book, What's Wrong With Religion, but you know, and 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 it's and it's got some really good stuff as you'll as you'll hear, but we kind of wanted to take on some other things too that we've heard him talk about. Yeah, and so we spent a little time fooling around with that. Um, when I asked him ahead of time how excited he was to be on the podcast, one being um, near death, ten being his wedding day, he said four, <laughs> and uh, I think that's pretty consistent for guests of the Vox podcast. So so. Um, just know, and this, and, and so, so sky at a four is still pretty awesome. Yeah, I thought so. But he was at a four. I was trying to carry it for a while. And then I just, I think I got pulled down to, <laughs> to, to fourness also. Um, and then Andy, right at the very end, Andy chirps in with some crazy stuff. So make sure you stay tuned for that. When Andy just confesses essentially that, um, he refuses to read, read books, um, to an author whose book we're Which talking about. True. I mean, like, well, this actually claims nothing as, as I'm making this point, I'm like, look, look at all these books I've read that are up on this shelf here. It's like, well, there's no proof I've read those books and half yeah, of them exactly. are Calvin and Hobbes, by the way. Exactly. So that, oh, well, that's perfect. Yeah. That. So, so my brothers and sisters, we're so, we're so glad to be back. Thank you for all your support in the meantime. And uh, so we're excited for you today to, to hear our interview with Sky. So uh, Andy, punch it, baby. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Mike here with Andy. Um, and then we've got a friend named Sky. Anytime you can you can have somebody named Sky join you on a podcast, that is awesome. His name is Sky Jatani. Uh, he and I actually went to the same college, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And just to be clear... Sky, you'll remember this. Miami was was a university before Florida was a state. Absolutely. And uh, not many people not many people understand the beauty of Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. But Sky and I both uh, graduated from there. Sky has gone on to uh, to big and beautiful things. Uh, I'm doing a podcast with Andy, so so <laughs> it's uh, it's really hit or miss uh, when you graduate from there. But no, Sky, welcome to the show. We have so much to talk to you about. Can you briefly? Uh, the first question I, I, I would just would give you is, could you briefly run down all that you're involved in right now? Because you're on the Phil Vischer show, correct? Yeah, Phil started that podcast like five years ago, and, and I thought I was coming on as a guest for the first episode, and he's like, no, I want you to be on every, every one. So we've been doing you were, that. You were podcasting before podcasting was like the thing. Yeah, and it's a. I don't know if you really want to talk about the Phil Vischer podcast, but its origins are interesting, and we had no intention of it ever becoming anything. It was just purely a hobby that we would do once an hour, once a week. Um, but it it much as must have scratched an itch because it's got a pretty good audience, and um, 
we're so Phil and I are both so distracted on other things we're doing. We've never tried to leverage <laughs> that or you know commercialize it in any way, which is probably foolish. But it is what it is. I love it. And, and is it, it's weekly, correct? Usually, yeah. Um, unless I'm traveling or something else is going on, it's pretty much weekly. It comes out every Tuesday. And so you were doing that, and you were doing Leadership Journal for a while, correct? And, yeah. Uh, or Christianity Today. Right. So Leadership Journal was part of Christianity Today, and I got connected with them in 2004, and I left about two years ago in um, 2015. So over 11 years, I had a very convoluted relationship with CT and Leadership Journal. I actually left CT three times. Um, <laughs> wow. Wow kept pulling me back in like I had a relationship where sometimes I was full-time sometimes part-time sometimes I was just a consultant on the side and I had many different roles over those 11 years and really positive experiences um, and grateful for many of the, my colleagues there who most of whom are now kind of scattered to the wind it's it's um, it's kind of crazy how that place launches people out into different things um, but that it seems was, like it, it gave you it gave you a great window into the evangelical sure. subculture. That it did, yeah. I, you know, when I was during those some of those years, I was also on staff at my church, and prior to being at leadership, I was full time at my church, and I found myself getting kind of antsy, and I I was debating whether or not to go back to school for a doctorate or do something. But I, when I got down to it, I realized what what was troubling me is I think the way I'm wired I just had a hard time having my whole life be just my congregation and I desperately wanted to explore and learn and grow and I thought maybe going back to school was the right right way to do that but then I got connected to leadership and it gave me this outlet to travel and engage and learn and see what's going on all over the country and even internationally and it just kind of fed my soul I loved it and that has helped me immensely but out of that came some some critique Right? right, so, so divine, divine commodity was written during that mm -hmm. that time. Uh, so it's been an interesting thing, at least from far away. You you have very insightful um, observations about the nature of kind of the evangelical subculture in America that have come about because of that whole experience. So it's it's been interesting to watch. Um, you were just on Bad Christian talking about the book we're going to be talking about, and uh, we had we've had Matt. And Joey on um, previously, but with Matt we were talking about the mega church phenomenon and kind of the bubble that it represents and what's the future of the mega church. And you had some, you you've done some really good thinking about that. I was wondering if we could start by just talking a bit about a bit about where you see the mega church going. What's what's the you know church of Jesus as best we can gather going to look like in thirty years? You know, is it still going to be megas everywhere or? Uh, is there is that bubble going to burst? You think? Well, this is you're familiar with this world too, so I shouldn't. It shouldn't just be my insights here. You've lived it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Sky, you're 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 getting paid a lot of money right now to share share your insights. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I'm getting paid as much as your other guests have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can guarantee that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth here. On one level, I don't think the megachurch is going anywhere. I think it is an established American expression of conservative Christianity. On the other side, um, I don't think we're going to see as many megachurches as we have right now. I think there's going to be consolidation in that sector. Um, some of them will plug on just fine because of where they're located or because they've got a sustainable... Um, customer base to be crass. Others won't. There's going to be a consolidation and a pairing back. And part of that is due to demographic reasons, part of it is cultural reasons. One of the things I latched onto in my research on this, um, which goes back a couple of years, is the fact that most megachurches in the U.S. are being led by a senior pastor who's probably in their 60s by now. A couple of years ago, the average age of the, the megachurch senior pastor was around 58, so I'm guessing mm -hmm. it's in the 60s by now. And most of those churches were either founded by that pastor or they reached a mega-level size with that pastor's leadership. Yep. And that means of the roughly 2,000, 2,500 megachurches in the United States, um, there's no precedent for how you transition these things successfully to a new generation of leadership. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a model that has been so built in many cases on the personality of that pastor. Um, it can be really challenging to transition. And one of the best examples of this is not too far from you with the Crystal Cathedral in Southern California. Robert Schuler's church was one of the first megas in the country. And when, when he stepped aside and then his kids tried taking over, it was, it was really messy. And now it's imploded and it, the property was sold to the Catholic Church and now it's a, a Roman Catholic cathedral. Um, so that's, I think, a big concern is just no one knows how to transition these behemoths to a new generation of leadership and do it really well. And that probably is the most immediate challenge that the mega model is facing, but there are others which we can get into if you want. Well, do you, do you feel like um, the, the slice of people uh, who are attracted to a mega church is decreasing? In certain regions, yes. I think in the South, it's probably got more time. Okay. Uh, the culture is such that there's still a lot of attraction to that. But you know, there's been a ton of research about Gen X, our generation, and millennials, and their attitudes about institutions. And right. you know, the feedback you keep getting from all this research is where our parents' generation, or the boomers, saw large institutions as being legitimate, our generation and those younger look at large institutions and assume that they're corrupt. Hmm. So. The boomers that created the megachurch, it makes sense, because if large equals legitimate, then a big church must be more legitimate than a small church, because tons of people are going there. A younger generation looks at a big church and says, eh, I'm not so sure. It, it's probably corrupt. It's probably abusing its power in some way. It's probably chewing people and resources. So I don't think there's quite the draw that there was for our parents, and that poses another threat, because if you can't get people to come and pay and serve and give and sacrifice... <laughs> Right, you can't sustain these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think we'll ever get over the celebrity pastor thing? No. <laughs> Just we too, too... No, we can't get over the celebrity president thing. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I think celebrity is the most powerful commodity in American culture, and there's no way the church is going to escape that. Got it. Dang. Write that down. Tweet that out, Andy. Yeah, I was literally about to right now. Hey, if I, if I can recommend something to illustrate this, uh, there's another little podcast I do with my friend Josh Lindsay called The Movie Proposal. Yeah. And just last week, we reviewed this movie that came out last year called um, Elvis and Nixon. Whoa. Interesting little movie, but it's, it's a true story about when Elvis Presley and Richard Nixon met one another. And it's a great example of celebrity trumping all other forms of power because Elvis, like even. Even Nixon rolls over on his back in front of Elvis. And lets, you know, it's, it's just a great example of American culture and what we really value. Yeah. No, that's really good. And then it, you, know, do you, you, you had said something. I don't remember in what context. I, I wanted to hear it again, though. Um, because part of you know, the future of the megachurch is, is, of course, figuring out how to relate to the LGBTQ community. Um, you know, my experience, you're either affirming, not affirming, or you don't ask, don't tell, you know, it's kind of the approach of a lot of megas that I'm familiar with. Um, but you had told a, a story and, and uh, about the, the Democratic Convention being um, led in prayer by a Catholic, I think, bishop or cardinal. Yeah, Cardinal. Um, what's that? Cardinal Dolan from New York. Yes, versus... The protest that came when Louis Giglio, one of our celebrities, uh, who is a great guy, of course. Um, um, what what was behind that? You think? Yeah, I actually talked to a, a, a couple of friends of mine who are very active in the LGBT community um, politically, and I asked them why why did you get the knives out for Louis Giglio when he was invited to pray at the inauguration? And not for Cardinal Dolan when he prayed at the DNC because they both hold the same theological view of marriage and sexuality. So why does the Roman Catholic get a pass and the evangelical get get protested? And what they said was really eye-opening. They said, you know, first of all, no one expects the Roman Catholics to be up to date on cultural values. 
<laughs> because I mean they don't they don't ordain women they still don't agree with divorce they don't allow contraception they're against abortion um, they just started doing the mass in English a couple decades ago they just, right they're not known for being culturally relevant right and so when the bishop gets up there and doesn't affirm gay marriage yeah no kidding we we're, no one is surprised by that he said, you evangelicals, however, have built your entire identity on being culturally relevant. And you will do anything to appeal to a wider audience. You'll use every form of communication that's out there. You will completely um, prostitute the Bible and, 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 and put it on t-shirts and gum wrappers and anything <laughs> to wider audience. You will change your style of worship overnight if you think it'll draw more people in. Um, you change policies based on what people are telling you they want. And he said when, when no-fault divorce became an issue in the 1960s and 70s, evangelicals had no problem with it for the most part. It was the Roman Catholics who resisted the passage of no-fault divorce laws. He said the first governor to sign no-fault no-fault divorce into law was Ronald Reagan when he was mm. governor of California and he's a darling of the religious right. So when we look at that, we recognize that one of the core brands, the core brand identities of evangelicals is cultural relevance, but you refuse to accommodate or give an inch on LGBT issues. The only thing we can conclude is it's not rooted in, in biblical or theological conviction, it's rooted in bigotry. And that's why we protest evangelicals but not Roman Catholics because they actually believe the Roman Catholic hierarchy has a principled position uh, that isn't just animus against LGBT folks but you evangelicals will give on anything you'll even compromise your politics as right. why won't you give an inch on LGBT stuff it has to be bigotry that's the only explanation oh my goodness dude and, and, and the whole Trump fiasco is kind of reinforce that narrative absolutely in terms of in terms of what how do you see that affecting uh the church you know for the next 20 years or so uh, <laughs> oh I'll, I'll give you an example uh just a few days ago i was meeting with a pastor from overseas he's uh i don't i don't even want to say what country he's from but uh a country with a significant size evangelical community that mm -hmm. has historically had very deep connections to the american church Got it. And he said to me, um, you probably can't understand how perplexed we are at American evangelicals right now, who have been our brothers and sisters for decades. He said, we frankly just don't trust you anymore. Hmm. And I asked why. And he said, because we cannot get our minds around how 80 plus percent of white evangelicals in America would vote for Donald Trump, a man who is doing irreparable damage to Christians around the world because of his rhetoric and putting certain Christians in certain countries in direct harm because of his rhetoric and is a man who is so contrary to the values of scripture why would you Americans sell out your brothers and sisters both around the world and your brothers and sisters in Christ of color in the United States to vote for this guy right. and I asked him I said well what will it take to repair the damage I said, is just getting rid of Trump? What's it going to take? He said, you don't understand. The damage is done. It's going to take more than a generation for the church in his country to trust the American church again. Because they are seen, we are seen as so compromised um, that we, we've lost all credibility. And, I, and I, hearing that from somebody overseas was eye-opening, but I've heard similar things from people in the U.S. who are either not Christians but have had um, been on a journey toward faith in Christ, or who are Christians but they're in the Latino or, or African-American right. community. So it's, yeah, it's incredibly damaging, but I don't think the damage was November 8th of 2016. Correct. That, that was just the fruit being... <laughs> That's right. And has been cultivated for decades. Mm. Yeah. So, in a way, it's almost a relief that it's out in the open now. Mm. Well, that 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 it it now provides a you know it's its own Nashville statement. Mm. Um, in terms of in terms of, you know, where I where I hear the most, 
uh, angst is are from younger people who are in the church who cannot believe their parents would support this, would vote for this, and it calls them to question, you know, the the faith that's kind of been handed down to them. If this is what a literal reading of the Bible leads you to. If this is what you know, decades of attendance in a big church leads you to, then how could you trust it? Right. I I think that's a very legitimate concern. And as Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. If this is the fruit of conservative, evangelical, white, American Christianity, it's pretty rotten. <laughs> totally. Oh, my goodness. How do you, how do you respond to, because I get this every time I open my mouth, you know, just stick to preaching. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think uh, I, you don't pastor anymore, do you? I mean, you don't pastor a church. You no. Do, I'm, I'm sure still, lots of pastoring. I'm still at the same church that I did pastor, so I have that continuity. But no, I'm not I'm not in that role actively. So do you, do you get a lot of that? Oh, yeah. Constantly. Yeah. What, how do you respond? Um, <laughs> you know, Christians are never persecuted for what they believe. Ever. They're persecuted for the implications of their beliefs. And everyone would be happier if our faith had no implications. That's for but sure. But it does. It does. I mean, there were riots not because Paul preached the gospel, but because his preaching of the gospel was going to take money away from the silversmiths who were making the idols. Okay? It's always yeah. the implications of the gospel that cause people to be uncomfortable. And what people would prefer is for the gospel to have no social or political implications. Yeah. And at that point, you're basically saying, okay, Jesus can be Lord over your personal life, he can be Lord over your sexuality, he can be Lord over your soul, but he better not be Lord over your community or your vote or your voice on public affairs because we right. don't want to hear it. Right. Uh, and for me, I've written and gotten a lot of critique for this. I made a, a case during the election that the part of the problem with the American church is that pastors are not political enough. Hmm. And people freaked out. I mean, absolutely freaked out at me. <laughs> totally. And, and I had to clarify. I said, look, I'm not calling for pastors to be more partisan. Right. But I, I'm calling for them to be more political in the truest sense of the word. Politics is simply that which we agree to do together. It's what we as a community say our resources and energy should go toward. And if we don't believe in helping shepherd people in the public application of their faith, then we are guilty of pastoral malpractice. Come on. We need to help people think through not just the personal implications of their faith, not just the familial implications of their right. faith, but the corporate and communal implications of their faith. You well, know? the problem is some do that. And they do it in a way that just leads to a, a wedding of their faith with conservative Republican politics. Yeah. And, and my argument is not that we need to be liberal Democrats. It's we need to be beholden to the scriptures and to the gospel of Jesus, not the platform of the Republicans or the platform of the Democrats. Right, right. And neither one. Yeah. Neither one, right. What's been lost in the church is the prophetic voice to speak to both sides and say, That's right. here's where you're right, here's where you're wrong, and we will not be enslaved by a political party on either side. Right. I love it, dude. Well done. And and one of the points you make in, in uh, the, the book we want to talk a little bit about today, um, uh, it's just called What's Wrong With Religion? And, um, and then what's the subtitle? Uh, nine... Nine things no one told you about faith. Nine things no one told you about faith. But one of the things you say is that religions don't all lead to the same place, but they begin at the same place. And they begin from a place of fear because the world is crazy. So, so you know, everything we've been talking about is a reflection of that, whether it's economic uncertainty or what's happening with North Korea or what's, what's you know, our president going to tweet about next um there is so much fear in the world and um and so so talk a little bit about if if you would about how you see because you make this interesting statement about everyone is religious and so we have we have some atheist friends on our podcast who would probably vehemently disagree with with that statement mm-hmm. um what do you mean by that and then how does that relate to to fear 
Yeah, that statement that everyone is religious is really a, a, a retelling of the theology of Paul Tillich, who was a, a more mainline liberal theologian. But his argument was every human being is religious because everyone has something of ultimate concern. Something that is most important to us that defines our lives and our actions. In biblical language, we would say everyone has a god or everyone has an idol right. that they worship. Yeah, everyone and worships something. Everyone worships something. So everyone's religious. Um, and the the back to take a step backward though is okay. Why do we all have something of ultimate concern, or what function does that thing play in our lives? And the argument I'm making is beyond everyone being religious. Everyone is also afraid. Mm -hmm. We all occupy the same uncertain universe. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We all have things that we worry about. Um, death being the most significant but many, many, many other things. And in our fear, just as you learn in biology class, we all respond in one of two ways, which is fight or flight, right? Yeah. And both fight and flight are really just means of control. One says you gain control by dominating the thing you're afraid of, I overpower yeah. it. And the other says you gain control by escaping from the danger and changing the circumstances. But they're both... Where does, where does eating play into that? Because <laughs> I find that... But there's a third option. So <laughs> I think flight or fight or maybe maybe food? I, th I think eating is a form of escape. Okay. Right? All right. Just checking. Or, or frankly, any, um, any addictive behaviors, whether it's food, drugs, sex, whatever, it's a way of, of calming your fears temporarily through a physical pleasure. It's an escape. It's a temporary escape from the, from the danger. But it, that's actually a legitimate issue. Um, but here's the thing. If you believe it's a dangerous world in which you are under threat and fight or flight are your options, um, the best, most satisfying forms of fight and flight that the human, the human creature has invented are, are religious. Um, what better way to try to gain control of the world than to appeal to God or the gods you believe control the world? That's what religion does. And some religions tell you actually you know, follow God and escape the world and you can transcend the dangers and, and overcome your right. fears. Right. So that's where all religions, though they look very different in the way they operate, they're all based in that, that common shared human fear and desire for control. Uh, and, and, and you make a really, uh, I thought this, and again, um, I'm not a paid endorser, I thought this was actually a great point. You said the more we seek to control, the more dangerous the world becomes. Yeah. Now that, that's some good sauce right there, buddy. Let's explain well, this, that. This is where I'm throwing the atheists a bone. This is where I think they actually have a very valid point. And normally when an atheist debates, debates religion, it isn't too long before they start listing all the horrible things that religion has done in the world. From holy wars to the oppression of women to you know, go on down the list. Right. And they, I think they're absolutely correct. Because all that most religions do is take all the fear you have about the world and transfer that fear to God. So now you're not just afraid of the world, you're also afraid of God and making sure God is happy, making sure God is on your side, making sure you'll be blessed. And the way to be blessed is to follow the rules perfectly. And so you start instituting all these rules to control yourself, to control your community, to control the world that you believe come from God in order to win his blessing. And in a, as a result, you just make the world a more dangerous place. Here's a non-religious example. Um, you know, more wars have been fought in history over water than any other resource. And it makes sense because you can't live without fresh water. So if you don't have access to it, you're going to become afraid. But the moment you try to gain control over that fresh water source, you may think you're making the world a safer place for yourself, but now you not only have to worry about losing that access, but now you're at war with the other tribe that also wants access to that fresh water. So yeah. you went from just being worried about dehydration, and now you're worried about dehydration and warfare. So control only leads to more danger. And I mean, that's basically the whole history of human civilization for 5,000 years. Right. Uh, so my point is religion, I think the critique is very accurate. It, in many cases, it actually makes the world a more dangerous place because what we're seeking is control. Right. And then that can't help but spill over into the control of others and the management of boundary lines and Absolutely. Okay. No, that's I, I think that's right. You say you say that religion is a form of cosmic bribery. 
uh, and, uh, and, and, and that the, the way we, we, we talk about religion to people is we're like multi-level marketers. You don't say it this way, but we, we only highlight the positive stories. We never tell the stories uh, of, the, uh, of the faithful who didn't end well. Um, or the faithful who didn't get what they want. It's always the stories, you know, the pretty red bow stories that we tell in church. It's never the the stories of, well, I prayed a lot, and then this person died. <laughs> so are we saying Christianity is the essential oils of the MLM, and like Lulu uh, Rowe is like Mormons? <laughs> yes. I love that. Well, there is something to that, given that uh, statistics show that women are far better at evangelism than men. <laughs> oh, well, they, they certainly are on my Facebook feed. Holy cow. It is uh, lavender cures everything. <laughs> so I don't know what to do about that. But you, you, talk, a, you talk a bit about um, either a person will conform to every moral boundary and eventually discover that God won't be manipulated, or they'll just fail to keep the moral boundaries at all. In mm-hmm. which case they're they're not you know redeemable, and and uh, and so kind of what's what's the the way through this? Um, because I think when people hear religion, um, you know a lot of different a lot of different things come to mind. For you, religion is a system that is in response to fear that ultimately tries to control the uncontrollable world. Correct. Right. And so so what's wrong with that? What, what if it provides comfort? Um, if it uh, if it gives people hope in the midst of a world that's you know uncontrollable, why is that a bad thing? Well, two reasons. First of all, as you already unpacked, ultimately we find that it doesn't work. So it may temporarily give you a sense of hope until the system of control fails you. So it doesn't work. Number one. Number two, in a more kind of biblical theological sense. Um, the definition of religion we're working from is actually the perpetuation of the sin of humanity that you see in Genesis chapter 3. The ultimate sin that's described there of the man and the woman eating of the tree, uh, it was a sin of rebellion. It was a desire to, to take the place of God himself, right? The serpent says, if you eat of the tree, God knows that you will be like him. And that's enticing to humanity. We want to be in God's role. And what, what this form of religion does is it says, I'm going to put God under me. I am going to control God through my morality or through my ritual or through my incantations or whatever it is your particular religious system tells you to do. But it ultimately puts us in control. And that is precisely the origin of sin, of evil itself. So not only does it not work ultimately personally, but it makes the world a more and more dangerous place, a more and more evil place. It perpetuates what exactly is wrong with the world rather than repairs it. So both on the individual and cosmic level, it just doesn't work and it makes things terrible. And so I'm sympathetic to people who run away from religion, who are de-churched, who are atheists, whether they really understand what that means or not, what they're essentially saying is, I don't want to be one of those religious people. I get it, because I agree with them. It doesn't work. It does screw up the world. It makes it a horrible place. Um, And I, to turn a corner, I don't think that this is the message that Jesus brought, even though it's the one that we tend to promote in churches that carry his name. What's the... what? What's the message that that you um, you would associate? What's fear-based Christianity look like? What's the what's the what's the religion of Christianity that that is guilty of this sort of missing of the point? Um, and what's that feel like? What's that what's that sound like? What's the gospel of that? Well, there's there's a couple different ones. The most the one that's traditionally appealed to is this one. You are a sinner, and because of your sin, you are destined to hell. But Jesus died for your sins, and if you would you know, accept him into your heart or say the sinner's prayer, then you get to go to heaven when you die. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I actually think that's a perversion of the gospel. Ooh. 
Because what it does is it says that Jesus is how I get my ultimate desire, which is not Jesus. My ultimate desire is escaping hell or going to heaven. So I'm Jesus, using Jesus. Right. Jesus is merely a tool, a device. And in, in all forms of, Dang. of mere human religion, God is always reduced to a, reduced to a tool that I employ to achieve my goal. Right. So it could be health and wealth. It could be success. It could be peace with God. It could be, you know, the removal of fear. All of those are undergirded by that same, right. that that, same move. Exactly. So we all would probably acknowledge the perversion of and the heresy of the health and wealth gospel that says, use Jesus to get a BMW. But we employ the exact same theology. We just change the details when we say, use Jesus to get out of hell. Right. Right. It's still a reduction of Jesus to a device, a means to an end, to achieve what I want. So that's, a that's lot the of consumer Right. That's the consumer version of it. Right. But it, it's also as old as religion itself. You know, I'm going to drop this virgin down the volcano to make sure there's a harvest next year and appease the gods. Same thing. Yeah. But then you identify, uh, and I think you call it missionalism. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 me using God, uh, or me using Jesus. Jesus is a tool, uh, means to an end, and and you, that's the consumeristic version. But then you call you have another one that's this missionalist version, which is interesting. I don't I don't hear a lot of people speaking out against the whole missional uh-huh. kind of movement. What do you mean by that when you say well, missionalism? I'm not trying to speak against missional. I mean, to be missional is great. Missionalism is a little different. Missionalism is when you've made the mission itself into an idol. Hmm. Um, In the book, I talk about, when you look at the ancient creation myths of most Near Eastern societies. Like you do. Like you do. Who doesn't? Right. The Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, even the Greeks. um, all their creation myths depict human, humanity as being created by the gods in order to serve the gods. You know, we, we fight their wars, we build their temples, we offer them sacrifices so they can have something to eat. That's kind of, the whole purpose of humanity is to do work for the gods. Right. In the Genesis account, the Hebrew telling of creation is very, very different because it's evident in that story that God did not create humans because he needed them to do something. Right. It says that he created them to represent him, not to be his slaves. And it, it go into all kinds of more detail about Genesis, but I think what missionalism communicates to, to Christians is ultimately your value to God is your usefulness. He wants to use you to achieve something in this world, to change the world, to transform the world, to accomplish his mission. Right. And, and I think that perverts, again, the message of the Bible which is that uh, you are not valued because you are useful. You are valued because you are inherently valuable as someone created in the image of God. And, oh, by the way, God is not valued because he is useful. He is inherently valuable because he is God, period. And it's not this utilitarian ethic. So my big concern with missionalism is it puts the mission itself as the most important thing and then measures everyone's value based on how they relate to that mission. So you're either on mission and doing great things for God and therefore highly valuable, or you're a lazy Christian who should be on mission but isn't and needs a kick in the pants, or you're an object of the mission, someone who hasn't been converted yet, and therefore your value is in your potential conversion, not in person you actually are. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very idolatrous, even pagan understanding of humanity that I think is foreign to the message of Jesus. Well, and it and it speaks against this. I don't know how you know. I don't want to like generationally stereotype, but it speaks against kind of a millennial. I've got to do great things for God. Yeah. Um, or it doesn't count, you know, kind of thing. I mean, even my my fourteen year old son. We we you didn't know this. We moved from California to Ohio, and um, we he was wrestling with. Uh, did I did I really do anything significant in California? Are people people going to miss me? Are people did I did I do enough? I mean, and I'm going. You're 14, dude. I mean, I, I at 14 <laughs> I was you know, did I kiss enough girls? I mean, I wasn't worried about wasn't worried about that. But there is this sort of radical Christianity being held out now um, that can be used to sort of guilt people into those sorts of questions. Yep. 
and 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 you would say and i i would agree i think uh that's that's the mission that's a form of the missionalism right unless i'm doing great things for god uh, and i think it's incredibly dangerous very very dangerous mostly because of what jesus says toward the end of the sermon on the mount in matthew chapter 7 we can it's ignore like, that sky the the sermon on the mount that's just that's just jesus he's just giving ideals he's he doesn't really mean us to follow that stuff i'm sorry of course no 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 in that he says many will come to me referring to the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? And he says, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. And when you, when you really dig into what's being said there, what's being depicted, it's pretty horrifying. <laughs> These are yes. people who don't just acknowledge Jesus as uh, some kind of um, regal authority. When they say, Lord, Lord, that's a declaration of divinity, right? It's, right. And they're saying, we prophesied in your name. We were preaching in your name, and we fought evil in your name. We, we sought social justice and overcame all kinds of evil systems in your name. We performed miracles in your name. These are people who spent their whole life trying to have an impact for Jesus and did have an impact for him. And yet when they right. see him face to face, he's like, I didn't know you. Right. And, and that's the danger of replacing a relationship with Jesus himself with being on mission for Jesus. Right, And in my view, the two great strengths of the evangelical tradition of the church are our commitment to Scripture and our commitment to the mission of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to diminish those two things at all, but in any tradition of the church, the things that we focus on most can also become idols. Right. And we can focus on the mission of the gospel so much that it actually becomes an idol and replaces God himself. Yeah. That's the danger. I don't want to say don't be on mission or don't serve God. Whatever your vocation is, whatever he has called you to do in the world, by all means, do it. Do it faithfully. You will be held accountable for it. But it's not where you derive your identity, your value, or your eternal significance. Right. And a lot of Christian communities, especially with millennials, as they go to colleges and stuff, there's so much emphasis on changing the world and impacting mm-hmm. the world whether it's evangelism or justice issues, whatever it is, and they get their whole sense of value and significance from how much am I changing the world. And I'm worried that we're just creating a bunch of, of we're in dialogue. Scott, I think we lost you. You there, buddy? I think we, think we lost him. Too bad he wasn't saying anything good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me try to get him back here. That was Such a, pretty, a bummer. It's a pretty clear cut. Looks like he, he's calling back. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we could just cut it now, anyways. I, I, I don't think this was really going anywhere. <laughs> oh wait. Oh, what just happened? Okay. Well, that was demonic attack. There's no question. We were just attacked spiritually because of the good stuff Sky was saying. We are back. <laughs> Andy Bear has worked his Skype magic. We are back. And we were talking about um, uh, the the pressure I think a lot of people feel to be radical in their faith or uh, to do great things for God and to, and to uh, you know, walk into that space where the ordinary doesn't count as spiritual, but it's only the extraordinary that counts uh, as spiritual. How is that, if you, could, if you could recapitulate just for a second, how is that a perversion of the gospel? Because for a lot of folks, that, you know, yeah, it sounds a lot better than the consumer one, no question about it, right. but why is this one bad? Um, it's the same thing we, we spoke about before. It still reduces God to a device. It reduces him to a means to an end. The goal is changing the world. Got it. How I'm going to do it is, well, I'm going to use scriptural principles, or I'm going to use um, right. my faith, or I'm going to use Jesus to change the world. But ultimately what I'm seeking is um, what I refer to as the eternal life of celebrity. Nice. And, and, and there's the second death of obscurity. If if I get to the end of my life and people don't know who I am, that's, I hell. That. that's real hell. But if I get to the end of my life and I've changed the world and people right. know who I am, that's eternal life. That's salvation. Well, Hugh Hefner, baby. Do you see what's pouring in about Hugh today? Uh, I haven't looked closely. I know he died, but that's about it. Oh, my goodness. The tributes are hilarious. Oh, I mean, no. out, changed the world, liberated women. You know, it's just like, but 
to your yeah, point. That's, that's, when I first saw a Playboy magazine as a boy, my first thought was, those are really liberated women. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we've, exactly. We, we've arrived. Women are free now. <laughs> uh, but but to your point, here's here's a, this is what eternal life is in our culture, mm-hmm. right? You've got you've got celebrity, and now news consists of noting how many celebrities you know are grieving because of your passing and so on. Yeah, and and social media has now given us a way of quantifying celebrity. Right. Um, how many followers do you have? How many you know friends? On and on and on. But um, going back to the radical idea. I actually think we are called to be radical, but we need to actually define that word. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hate to kind of pick on David Platt because his book Radical has kind of made this conversation happen. But um, I think what he, the flaw in his logic is he takes radical and uses a culturally defined uh, mm-hmm. framing of it. Radical is to turn things upside down. It's to be have a big impact in the world whatever in its truest sense the word radical comes from the latin word radicalis which means rooted it's where you get the word radish from and so i think we are called to be rooted we're called to be as jesus says in john 15 be rooted in him i am the vine you are the branch abide in me and i will abide in you and through me you will bear much fruit so the truly radical life is not the one defined as the world defines it you know world change upside all that the radical life is the one spent in deep intimate abiding communion with Christ. And that's the kind of life I think he's looking for. That's what he wants in mm. Matthew 7 when he says, I never knew you. For me, that Matthew 7 text, the most frightening word in that text is the word many. Yeah. The fact that many people will end up in eternity completely convinced they belong to Jesus because they've spent their life serving him. And he'll be like, "I yeah, but I didn't know you. And I think that's probably my greatest concern with the evangelical movement right now, even beyond the politics and the consumerism and all that. It's we're we're trying to solve the politics and the consumerism problems, but we're we're kind of jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire by saying the solution to this is a, a radical Christianity, which is all about mission. Well, now you're just off the road on the other side. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. I want to I want to uh, jump to. A little bit. I mean, I don't want to go through the whole book, um, but we still want people to read it. But um, one of the things that that you argue is okay. So if if fear, uh, then the desire to control, then ultimately the religious expressions of those desires come from the belief the world is dangerous. What is the fruit of the belief that the world is safe? <laughs> and so so riff on that a little bit because that that's uh, I remember Dallas Willard made that point in divine conspiracy you know the the world is a is a god-bathed world and per you are perfectly safe in god's universe mm-hmm. i remember just reading that going i don't feel that way none of my christianity makes me feel that way you know yeah. so i thought that was a really profound profound thing yeah and, and actually that's where i first encountered it as well was reading willard's book and i got to that it's pretty early in the book and i got to that and i thought right. this guy is completely crazy <laughs> like th- that is the biggest load of BS. How do you say that with a straight face? Right. Um, yeah. But the more I got into it, and the more you actually study what Jesus said and 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 the scriptures, I think he's absolutely right. Um, you know, the most frequent command in scripture is "Do not be afraid." Mm-hmm. And and I think this was Paul's point in Romans, where he says, "Hey, if God is for us, who can possibly stand against us?" And he's proven he's for us. Because he sent his own son to die for us. And if he's given right. us that, won't he surely give us all things? And and there's nothing in all creation, height or depth, angel or demon, life or death, nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And, yep. okay, if you take that as true, then you are perfectly safe. It means not even death can have any ultimate power over you. It can have yeah. no impact over you. And that... That is truly liberating, because now when you read the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus actually begin to make sense. Right. right. If the world can't right. harm me, if death can do no harm to me, if God has me in his hands forever without any worry, then I can give to someone who asks of me. I can forgive the person who's wronged me. I can bless the person who hates me. You know, I can do all these very counterintuitive things that make no sense in a dangerous world because right. I'm set free from the dangerous world. And you see that in Jesus. He can. It says in Hebrews that he went to the cross. He endured the shame of the cross. 
because of the joy that was set before him. So he was able to, to accept that cup of suffering and endure that horrible experience because he knew what was coming on the other side. Right. He knew he would be raised up. He knew he'd be given the name above all names. He knew he would not be abandoned to the grave. That's where our courage comes from. That's right. And unfortunately, in a lot of American Christianity, rather than emphasizing the hope or the eternal safety we have in Christ, a lot of so-called Christian leaders simply try to emphasize the dangers. That's right. All the things that you need to be afraid of in this world, all the horrible things that are going to happen to your kids if the wrong person is elected, or <laughs> horrible things that are going to happen to your church if the wrong legislation gets passed, on and on and on, make you more and more and more afraid. You know, I'm, I can't believe that we don't have nationwide Sharia law yet, given all the rhetoric from right. years ago. And, it's know, coming. Fear-based. And, and I think there's nothing more counter to the gospel of Jesus than so-called Christian leaders trying to lead his people with fear. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. And in fear, you will find it impossible to obey the commands of Jesus, which may explain why the church in America looks the way it does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and why 80-some percent voted for a person who promised to reduce their fear. Right. Or at least to, to listen and address them. Scott, what um, um, when you when you when you sat down to write this, kind of what did you hope uh, people would walk away from? Who's this for? Yeah, well, the book's formatted in an odd way. It's unlike any book I've done because it's it's relatively short. It's it's a six inch square book, and it has a bunch of cartoons in it. That's <laughs> what of, I'm talking about. Yeah, a bunch of drawings, and and part of the reason I did that. Um, is this is going to sound insulting, and I don't mean it to be, but the statistics show that the average American reads less than one book a year, which may also explain a lot of why we are the way. <laughs> um, but I felt like I really wanted to get this message in the hands of people who don't enjoy sitting down with a 200-page book right. and, and spending you know 20 hours plowing through it. So I wanted to make it accessible, and I wanted to make it engaging, particularly for a younger audience, high school students, college students, or people who don't normally read long books, yeah. and make it as clear and winsome and easy to transmit the message to other people as possible. So that's why the book is formatted the way it is. And I don't think the concepts are difficult to understand, although I, I hope they're still really deep and yeah. meaningful. So that's that's who I was aiming for with this book. How can people track you? I mean, just run down the list of everything. Well, there's the Phil Vischer podcast, which right. you can, you know, iTunes or wherever. There's the Movie Proposal podcast, which we do about twice a month. There's my website, skyjatani.com, which, you know, look it up, how to spell it. Uh, just Google it. Honestly, there, there. I'm pretty sure there's not another Sky Jatani on the planet. So you can Google me, and you will find me. My parents had a lot of foresight in giving me a name where the URL was available. I uh, love that. What's your middle name? Well, actually, Sky is my real name. What's that? Sky is not my real first name. What? I know. Well, it's I would conspiracy. So uh, my given name is Akash, which Ooh. is which is a Hindi name. Which is still okay, yeah? Yeah. Still cooler but, than Mike. I'm sure the domain's still open on that one, too. <laughs> Akash means sky. So from the time I was born, oh. my name has been Sky, and my mom put an E on the end. I don't know why. My middle name is Charles. Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> which, is, uh, which is my Norwegian grandfather's name. Perfect. So I'm a, I'm a big mess. But um, anyway, Google me, you'll find me. And my books are available on my website, which is yeah, always he's the first way to get them. They're also available on Amazon, digital or uh, physical. Awesome, dude. Listen, it, it is so great to hear your voice. Um, thanks again. Uh, I, I would highly recommend to uh, our crew. Um, Sky, Sky's got a really interesting take on some stuff. He's got some eBooks out there. Um, to complement kind of the full-length books he's done. But um, we've been excited to have him on. So thanks for your time, man. Appreciate That's it. That's great, Mike. I'm so glad we were able to do this and reconnect. Yes. Reunited. All right, Andy Bear, you got anything you want to add as a millennial trying to change the world? <laughs> well, I know we're on the back end here, but I did when you when you were saying, like, you know, 
the average person only reads like one book a year, right? And you wanted to make that book accessible and that kind of thing. And I'm just like, well, how? I'm like, what is what is like the millennial response to that? Because like to me, I'm like, I'd be fine watching nine videos that tell me what those things are without having to pick up a book. Now, obviously, I'll contribute to that statistic, but am I? Am I missing out because I haven't I haven't taken the full stock and integrity of a of a publishing of a book versus the information is still there from the source from the author, so I, I mean, what am I not participating in if I'm choosing the digital routes to resource myself, podcasting like YouTube videos? I mean, versus actually reading the book aside from that maybe just being the financial security for the person who released it is that no you're training you're training your brain to suck andy <laughs> that's why you don't talk a lot it's because you don't read a lot buddy now sky what would you say to that uh, i think you have a valid point um I i'm not opposed to communicating via video or podcasts or whatever those those are fine i'm, I'm not against that in fact, I'm hoping in the not too distant future to take a lot of the content from this book and create a video curriculum out of it sure. for people who want to engage by video. So I'm not opposed to that. Um, however, there are there are really important concepts and ideas that predate the YouTube era, and if you're ever going to really <laughs> access those, you do need to pick up books and read them. And Fair and enough. I do think there's something and, and brain science has proven this, there's something different about reading the written word That's right. than watching video. Mm -hmm. And you you engage in process differently and you absorb differently, you synthesize differently. Um, so I, I I wouldn't be con like with my own kids, I would not be content if they just watch videos all day long rather than read books. There's a critical uh, I mean, science has proven that the human brain was different prior to the printing press. Okay. Because when reading actually wires your brain differently than not reading. So yeah, I think we are losing things in our culture and in our society by not reading as much as we had in the past. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I, I, I totally appreciate that response. And I think it's it's funny because I could, I could even – I'm still – I'm advocating for your point too. I mean I just – I find – to be honest, I finally had a chance to almost read a whole book over the course of a week on a vacation I just took. And I walked away from that being like not staring at a screen even reading. You know, mm -hmm. there, I actually felt a significantly more um, like comfortable sense of like peace. Like my head felt balanced. I didn't feel like my eyes were having to respond to light. You know, what I mean, it was even down to those very simple things that I felt like I actually feel more relaxed because I read. I mean, because I read every night on my phone, but I never feel that sense of peace and that sense yeah. of relaxation. But actually, committing to sitting down and reading the words on a page, you know, there is something you know actually seemingly correct and wonderful about doing that so anyways i'm just kind of pulling your chain but on it i was actually really like well actually that, that seems a pr like a pretty relevant problem so mm -hmm. great for Absolutely. i think i appreciate that so that, that's my add-on after he already gave his ending bumper <laughs> Boom. <laughs> so, oh andy i love it dude that gives me so much ammo in the future i'm sure <laughs> I'm sure your brain, your brain, your yeah. brain just is is informed rightly. We need we need a new. PSA I'm sorry, Jesus. That isn't like I'm my sorry, brain Jesus. On drugs. It's like I didn't on... know you. Yeah, <laughs> because you weren't on YouTube. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, all right, guys. Uh, Sky will honor your time. Thanks again, man, for for uh, meeting with us today. Um, have a great day. Yeah, man. Take care. Thanks. Thanks Let's do it again. All right. See ya. See ya. So it, we've learned about Andy. He doesn't read. Um, and uh, and I think that explains a lot. I think we can all agree that that was that we, we got a window into Andy's soul. Um, he'll read on his screen, but he won't read a book. No, it, it, it's so funny um, because my kids uh, want like um, my parents, uh, my mom, excuse me, keeps asking to you know buy Nate a Kindle or a Nook or a, one of these electronic readers. And I, and I keep resisting it. So I'm like, no, I want him in books. I want him in books. There's something about books. Um, and, uh, and so, Andy, now I feel that sort of parental, uh, parental um, angst for you as well, my friend. We're yeah. going to. You, want, there, some there's a you book. want some science on that, by the way? There's, there, there's tons of science on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the. the Even the difference the, between reading from a screen versus reading a real book. And, but also the uh, difference from reading from an OLED screen that is a Kindle, which is not light. So there, there, that's, oh. that's kind of part of it too. So like, there's actually oh. a high, a much higher reader experience on like the Amazon Kindle or the Nook because you're not looking at light. 
So the actual ability to read it, it you actually get somewhat of the same experience from reading a normal book because the the neurology from the eyes to the brain isn't being as drastically affected as looking at an actual like screen on light. But the the problem still is what's called um it's called like infinite reader fatigue with scrolling versus page turning. So huh. they they've picked up on like a very interesting like survey huh. on turning a page actually brings about this sense of pause and peace and a reading flow that's much healthier for the brain versus infinite scrolling of information without a page. My turn. wife, my wife suffers from infinite reader fatigue anytime she picks up one of the books I've written. I can tell you that right now. I literally, literally think she's read maybe the dedication of the first book because it was about her. And I think, I think possibly that is it. So anyway, anyway. my brothers and sisters, uh, Chase Down Sky, he's got a lot of great things to say. Uh, We're glad to have him on the show. And and for you, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And may he in these days give you peace. Amen and amen. Until next time, my brothers and sisters, thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.